0: Welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. As most of you know, uh, my family and I, we recently moved back to Folsom after being gone for 10 years. And, and though we lived uh, in town previously uh, for actually a number of years, probably collectively 12 years uh, before that, uh, we're in a different house. We're on a different street. We are, uh, we have different neighbors than ever before making this by the way, for those of you scoring at home, our eighth Folsom address. So last Sunday are being our first Halloween in our new neighborhood. Uh, and since we'd had this assignment, uh, from Rachel, you know, that morning uh, at church, uh, to, you know, to be out in our neighborhood watching for what God uh, might be doing. Uh, Carolyn left with the kids and our next door neighbor to go do trick-or-treating, and I decided that I was going to take the opportunity to uh, drag out our fire pit into the driveway and sit there with a bowl of candy waiting to receive the Crowds of happy children that were bound to come by and seek of, well, sweet treats to eat. And so over the next uh, hour and a half or so, I I sat out there and had four trick-or-treaters come up to my driveway. There was a couple of families that were out with little kids that were further down the street. Uh, There was one high school age uh, girl that came by by herself. And then a group of four uh, probably middle school age boys that, you know, were out on their own enjoying the night. That was it. And I have to say, I was more than just a little disappointed. You see, I was imagining this street teeming with kids and families and laughter and fun. And instead, there was just a few solitary groups walking alone down the dimly lit street. No one dared disturb the sound of silence. The one exception, of course, being the group of Middle school boys, which is, of course, no surprise. They came running joyfully up to my house. Uh, and then after helping themselves to my obviously ample supply of candy, they kind of joyfully bound down the street uh, to hit the rest of the homes. But as I left, I noticed, as they left, I noticed that that they actually ran past probably eight to ten houses before they knocked on the next door. And then it was another six or, ho- or so houses after that before they hit uh, 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 the next house. And, and, and in all, they went all the way down to my street, which probably is about a quarter mile worth of, you know, tightly packed, fulsome track homes. And they only hit maybe three or four houses down that whole stretch. You see... There's a protocol for trick-or-treating. I don't know who established this or, or how it is passed down from generation to generation in nice suburban neighborhoods, but apparently it is well known because even these four unsupervised middle school boys followed said protocol. The protocol is, if the lights outside the house are off, then you're not supposed to knock on their door. It is a signal to trick-or-treaters, we don't want you to come here. And when you think about it, it's actually, well, it's actually kind of sad. Because on my street, at least, uh, most houses have their lights on every night. You know, most houses like us, you know, then LED bulbs and stuff. Like, we never turn ours off. Which means that most of the house on our, my street, actually, because it was Halloween, took the additional step to turn their lights off for that night. Actually, an intentional act to communicate to trick-or-treaters. You're not. Welcome. And I, I, I get it. We are long removed from the days of kids running in and out of the neighbor's house without knocking and people chatting over the fence in the backyards and whatnot. But I still thought that at least maybe on this one night in our town with such beautiful sidewalks, such safe streets, that maybe we might be able to make the exception for tonight. And of course, my point This morning isn't to, you know, say that the shrinking number of trick-or-treaters in our communities is what is leading to the unraveling of our society and life as we know it. That's, That's not what this is about. It's just that I was sitting there with like a lot of free time on my hands. And the number of lights that were turned off this past Sunday night, and the message that they sent, it did challenge me to ask the question of my home. Is the light at my house on? I mean, like, not just on Halloween necessarily, but like, all the time. When my neighbors walk down the street, drive down the street, as they do life around my home, what message does it send? This morning we're continuing our series that we started last week that we're calling uh, Home for the Holidays, where we are looking at how to make the space that we call home a missional outpost for God's kingdom. Last night, Mike talked about the importance of recognizing uh, the place that we live in, that we are set there to build the kingdom of God into that place physical space and this morning we're talking about the next step which is to welcome others into our space this practice which is known as hospitality now throughout history it has been one of the main ways that people of god have not only extended the kingdom of god but also have experienced his presence see since the very beginning god has held his people responsible for the care of strangers. Throughout ancient times, travelers always had to rely on the hospitality of others due to the lack, of course, of any holiday inns or motel sixes uh, in ancient Mesopotamia. So travelers would arrive in a town with no reservations and no acquaintances and rely on the benevolence of the residents for a meal and a place to stay. Throughout the stories of the Old Testament, like the one that we read earlier, hospitality is always commended. Those who do not care for strangers uh, in their own town are judged and condemned, as you can read later on in Genesis chapter 18 about the towns of Sodom and Gomorrah. Which isn't too unique, of course, because all throughout ancient cultures, hospitality was expected. But in Israel, in the people of God, it isn't just expected. It is actually commanded... By God, God commanded the people of Israel, The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Leviticus 19.34 tells us. Of course, this continued on in the life of the early church. In the New Testament, we see Jesus renewing the expectation for his followers to care for. For others, in teachings such as the parable of the Good Samaritan, the the parable of the wedding feast, the parable of the sheep and the goats, all of these emphasize the expectation from Jesus that we should care for the weak and the alien. Throughout Acts, we see hospitality in practice, the Christians having everything in common, staying in each other's homes. The epistles of Romans and First Timothy and First Peter and he- Hebrews continue the command to practice hospitality as well. Even beyond the writings of the New Testament. In the first centuries of the early church, they continued to be known by the fact that they would welcome people into their homes. They made their homes available to people, anybody who might need them. Actually, in fact, the pagan Romer, Roman emperor, Julian, In the 4th century, he noticed how the excellent care the Christians took of the poor and the homeless throughout the empire. And so he actually ordered his pagan priests to enact similar practices among their people because the Christians were making them look bad. Throughout the early centuries of Christianity, the faith spread mainly because Christians made their homes available to those outside. But the thing is, hospitality wasn't just a church growth strategy for them. Where they, you know, they lured unsuspecting outsiders into their home and then presented them with an offer from Jesus that they could not refuse. The early church was so passionate about hospitality because it was also one of the primary ways that they themselves experienced the presence and action of Christ in their lives. This story that we read at the beginning of the message is a story that kind of sets the expectations for hospitality among the people of God. It is a story of a powerful encounter that Abraham has with God... All because he decides to welcome him in. Story starts, of course, with Abraham sitting outside his tent. Apparently, he caught Rachel's little story last week. Decided he was going to sign up for Oak Hills' fall program of being outside watching. Because Abraham, Genesis tells us, was sitting at the opening of his tent. His Front door, if you will. It's almost as though he was keeping watch. Looking for something. Looking for someone. Which I think really is where establishing a welcome spirit in our home has to start. You see, a home that is locked up, shades drawn, garage door down, lights out, sends a very clear message. Sends a message, nobody is home! And if there is... We don't want you to know that anybody's home. And we all feel this, right, instinctively when, we, when we're when we the ones that are pulling up to somebody else's house. I mean, just feel the difference between pulling up to the house with a gated combination lock and security guard that you have to punch in and then this long, dark walkway that you have to manage as you get up to the front door with no clear way to in, versus when you pull up to a house and... The family is waiting on the driveway for you. We, uh, we went to some friend's house a, a few weeks ago. And as we pulled up, out in front of their house, sitting on the curb in the walkway was their little boy, Jakey, who Jakey loves his Auntie Carolyn. And he had apparently been sitting there waiting for us to get there for a half an hour. You know, like you pull up to a house like that, There's no way to not feel welcome at that place. And I know this is something that that we were doing, you know, uh, most of us during the pandemic, right? I mean, all around the country, people were pulling out chairs, sitting out in front of their houses, talking to each other across the street, chatting with the people that were walking by because nobody had any place else to go. Nobody had seen anybody else for. For a long time and we were all panicking. For those of us who actually started doing that, it was actually a lot of fun. But of course, things have started opening up. We've gotten back to our old habits of driving up and pulling into the garage and closing it behind us. And not going out again until we leave for work the next day. That is, of course, if we're not working from home. If we're working from home, we could go weeks, months without ever leaving our house. And this is really again. The, the power I think of the simple exercise. That Rachel was inviting us into last week. Of uh, just being outside. It sends a message. To our neighbors. That somebody actually lives here. And we actually want to be a part of. Whatever is happening. In this community. And it also means. That we'll be there. When. When. God shows up, which he did for Abraham in the form of three men. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby, Genesis tells us. And when he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. Now, it's easy to kind of blow past that statement and think nothing of it because the narrator has already told us, the reader that this is a story about Abraham encountering God. But if you look within the story, there's no indication necessarily that Abraham recognized these three visitors as the manifested presence of God yet. So the fact that Abraham runs up to these three visitors and bows down low to the ground, that's actually probably Abraham's standard greeting. To people who came to his door. And it makes you wonder. What must we have to believe about other humans? Not just like my friends and the people. No, but anybody who bears the image of God. What must we have to believe about other humans? To make it our standard practice to act that way to people that come to our door. You see, one of the core elements of the early church's practice of hospitality was this sense that, that when in Matthew 25, 35, Jesus says, I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. And then later in verse 40, when Jesus says, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. The early church really took these statements to heart and fully believed that in welcoming people into their home, They were, in fact, welcoming Jesus. And I know it might be easy to dismiss this whole idea by, by, you know, with, yeah, but, you know, (sighs) these days are just so much more dangerous. Like, what if I welcome in the wrong person? We might get attacked. They might be a bad influence. They might vote for that party. They might disagree on my perspective on the pandemic or on vaccines or on anything else. They might want to invade or steal or even worse, they might not leave. (laughs) And of course there's a chance of something like that might happen. There's a chance for this for Abraham as well, right? These three men might have been marauders. They might have been spies. They might have been casing Abraham's tent for come back later and break in. And yet, His first instinct was to count it a privilege for them to visit him. Because he believed in God. And believed in God's promised protection over his home. And believed in God's provision for him. You see, the times when we as the people of God have been effective in hospitality it has been because of a deep conviction that what we have, the stuff in my house and everything in it belongs first and foremost to God. That's when we are good at it. When we believe that what we have, what is in our house, who is in our house, all of that belongs first and foremost to God. And here's the thing. God doesn't need us to protect His stuff. He's good with that. Like, He doesn't need us to stand guard over His stuff and, like, you know, filter through who gets to get some of it. But what He does want our help, what He actually commands us to help Him with, What he has explicitly told us to do is to share his stuff with those that come to our home. Which is why, believe it or not, it is a great privilege. The people that come to our homes are doing us a huge favor. Because they are actually helping us do what God commanded us to do. So Abraham goes out to these men, bows down low to the ground and sets. If I have found favor in your eyes, do not pass your servant by. Let a little, little water be brought. Then you may all wash your feet, rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then you can go your way. Now that you have come to your servant. To such an invitation, they said, very well. Do as you say. Now, Abraham wasn't expecting guests. He didn't know these guys. And yet when he saw them, his first instinct was to bring them in, sit them down, refresh them, have them sit in the shade of his tree, make food for them. In an instant, Abraham's day was completely transformed. His agenda was completely reset. His day in his whole household's day was now going to be all about these three men that literally just showed up. And of course, I see that. My first instinct is to roll my eyes and say, well, of course, Abraham probably didn't have anything else to do that day. And I think this is actually a good point to consider. You see, one of the reasons why our homes are closed and our lights are turned out is that we're exhausted. Going a hundred miles an hour in a hundred different directions. By the time we get home, by the time I get home, we're hoping and praying that nobody comes by. Because there's nothing left of us to offer. Which, you know, kind of works out. Because in our society, everybody else is going 100 miles an hour in 100 different directions too. So really, chances are that nobody is coming by anyway. Because who has the energy or the time to be running around to other people's houses? And really, if we think that society is fine the way it is, and that the isolation and mistrust and fracturing and loneliness that's running rampant through our town If we really think that it's no big deal and things are fine just as it is, that this really is life in community as God intended it. Well, then we should all just respect the social contract of the day, which says, you stay in your house, I'll stay in mine, and maybe we'll bump into each other at a stoplight sometime. Because we're all too exhausted to hang out together anyway. But you see, I don't think that many of us feel that way. I actually think that most of us feel that the isolation is killing us. It's killing our neighbors. And it's keeping us from creating spaces where Christ can be present and heal us and heal them. And so yeah, maybe Abraham wasn't as busy as we are. And by not being too busy... Guess what? He got to serve dinner to God. So what exactly is it that I'm doing all day that's just so important? And here, for you kids in the room with us today, on behalf of the parents of the room, I want to apologize to you. Yes, even my kids. See, the fact that we're tired keeps you from being able to share our home with your friends. Which, by the way, part of it is that we're jealous that you have friends and we don't. Our busyness has kept you from being hospitable. The fact that we're tired keeps you from inviting people over. And I know, I know we can get a little grouchy when you ask if your friends can come over. I'm sorry. But please keep doing it. Please keep pushing. Go home today and ask your parents. Yes, ask your parents if your friends can come over. And if they say no, just say, yeah, but Pastor said. (laughs) So anyway, there I was, Halloween night. I was outside Watching for trick-or-treaters. I had extra chairs for people to sit in. A bouncy house for crying out loud. I had tons of food to share. Feels like I'm doing everything everything that Abraham did here. And yet nobody, or I should say four people, And the reason for that, I believe, is that in our culture, we have created an unwritten contract with each other that says, I won't bother you, and you don't bother me. Let's just leave it at that. How about you go buy your own candy? I'll buy my candy, and we'll save ourselves the trouble of wandering up and down the street saying, trick or treat. Which, again, might be fine. Except for for us as the people of God, when we accept that contract, when we accept the unwelcoming status quo of our neighborhoods, we are discarding what throughout history has been the most effective context in which to share and model and experience and spread the kingdom of God. And if we care about our neighbors, if we care about our families, if we care about our community, our town, if we care about the planet, we simply cannot accept status quo. And so while it is essential to be outside and view guests as honoring us with their presence and bringing the presence of Christ with them, while we must learn to view our homes and everything in it as belonging to God and make space in our lives for our guests, these days we have to take that one more step. I think these days we have to take that one more step of initiative to invite. I was having lunch with a friend this past Friday. And we're talking about this weekend and, you know, our attempts at engaging our neighbors. And he was telling me that they had like 40 or 50 people come through their house this past Halloween. Which sounds completely different to the four isolated trick-or-treaters that I had. And you know what the big difference between their experience and mine was? They actually invited people over. Luke chapter 14, Jesus tells a parable about a man that planned a banquet. He was just going to have dinner and invite a whole bunch of people to come over. And time for the banquet comes, and so he sends out his servants to say, okay, dinner is served. Turns out all of his neighbors, uh, the people that he invited were busy, couldn't go. So he tells his servants, go grab anybody just invite the people in the alleyways and the, and the streets and the, bring them in. So the servants go out and do that. And he come back to him and say, yeah, we did all that. And we got all the homeless people and all the people that don't have food or anything in there. And we still have room. And he says, go out and compel, force, drag people to come to my house for dinner. I don't know if we should take it that far. But you get the picture of what Jesus is painting. if we want our home to be a place of blessing and a place where the kingdom of God breaks out and amazing stuff happens yes we need to be out watching and waiting and making space and all the rest of that stuff but we have to take the initiative and invite Which is why, you know, uh, we're doing this little experiment this Christmas with these things we're calling neighborhood Christmas tree lightings. I talked a little bit about it last week. It's a chance for us to take that initiative in opening up space in our homes for God to be present and to work in the lives of our neighbors. And and if you're interested in hearing more specifically about that, then you should come over to the family auditorium after the 11 o'clock service. There will be food. Uh, and we'll talk about it some more and you can see if that's something that you want to try this Christmas. In addition, of course, to that, uh, Ashley's working on a plan for the new year about how to mobilize us and kind of potluck festivities in our homes. Uh, So stay tuned for that uh, coming up in the new year. And all of this is with the belief that our homes are one of the most accessible places for our neighbors to encounter Christ. And it really doesn't matter how big our home is or isn't. Even if your home is just a room and a house. It still can be a place that you make available for others to encounter God. And of course, if they encounter Christ there, chances are you will too.